But this, uh, so we'll, we'll get there. We'll do communion at the end. Uh, that's where we're headed this morning. Um, but today, for, for you all that are visiting, we have been, we have been <laughs> marching through the whole Bible in three years. And um, we're in the New Testament. We're, we're actually getting close to the end. We'll probably finish sometime this fall. Maybe the end of the year we'll be done with our journey through Scripture. We, we spent about two years in the Old Testament, and we have turned into the New Testament. We are in the, the books of James and First Peter this morning. And, um, you know, obviously any book of the Bible is going to be hard to really address fully <laughs> in one week, uh, let alone two books, let alone the books of James and First Peter, which are just packed full of stuff. Um, but we're going to give a, our, our best shot this morning. Um, so, if you would, open to James. And then put a finger there and then open to Galatians. The more I was reading these two books together, the more I realized they had in common. And the more I realized they kind of do belong together. So um, I want to read this in in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19 or 18. This is Paul talking about his early uh, life in the faith and how he went to uh, Jerusalem pretty early on to meet with the apostles. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is Peter, And remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. James, the Lord's brother. And they go to chapter 2, 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So, what we see here is that James and Peter were two pillars of the early church in Jerusalem. Paul had been called by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to go beyond Jerusalem, to begin to spread the gospel all through Asia. We say Asia, it's not China and Japan, it's, it's Turkey and, and that area. Um, to spread the gospel all through Asia and beyond. He ended up in Rome and even going further, he was going to go on to Spain, etc., But there in Jerusalem, an important work was going on, and that was the capital of the Jewish state, the Jewish people, the center of it, uh, where the temple was, where the sacrifices were made. Uh, There was still, I mean, that's where the church was born, and there was still an important work to be done among the Jews in Jerusalem. And Peter and James, and it also says it includes John, uh, were pillars in that work, in that community, that initial birthplace of the church. And it's important to note also that there's a couple other Jameses who were apostles of Jesus. There was James Zebedee, uh, who was, you know, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Um, And then there was James, the son of Alphaeus. The the guy who wrote the book of James was neither of those apostles. He was James, the brother of Jesus, or you could call him the half-brother, obviously, because Jesus didn't really have an earthly father. Uh, he had Joseph, who, who adopted him as his own, but he was, you know, obviously, unless, unless we are heretics around here, he was born of the Virgin Mary. <laughs> right? 
So James was uh, his half-brother. He was in his nuclear family. And this is the guy who wrote the uh, book of James. And so uh, let me, I'm going to go through James first to just give some info about James. You can go back to James. So he's the half-brother of Jesus, which, I mean, can you imagine being part of Jesus' earthly nuclear family? That would have been, that would have been an amazing thing. And you can, you can understand why he, why he played an important role in the church in Jerusalem. I mean, he, he grew up with the guy, and he was, he was with him. So uh, I think that's pretty cool. Uh, but he, he doesn't refer to himself as the brother of Jesus as he opens his letter. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two, the twelve tribes in the dispersion. The twelve tribes in the dispersion. This book was written probably uh, between 40 and 45 AD. Which, so if Jesus died in 33, this is pretty early on. This is one of the earlier books that was written. You know, John's books were written a lot later. Um, this was one of the earlier written documents sent out from Jerusalem to the people who were scattered around. The dispersion. Okay? And the dispersion is a, all through the Old Testament, there was a dispersion. Okay? Anytime the Jews were scattered from their homeland, that was a dispersion. So there's not one particular dispersion. It just means God's people who are decentralized. They're scattered. They're in a lot of different places. Okay? And that happened for many different reasons, one of which was persecution. Okay? So these are Jews who have been forced to leave and go abroad, or go out from Jerusalem, and James wants to write to them. Um, but, okay, so, so in the dispersion, the, the synagogue became a very important center of community. Um, if you remember in Acts, when Paul went around to the different cities, the first place he went was where? He always went to the synagogue first. And so all through all through the world, outside of Jerusalem, there were synagogues. Okay? So the temple was in Jerusalem. That was the center. That was where the sacrifice happened. That was where you really went if you really wanted to meet with God. But that was not feasible for everyone. And so in all these different communities, there were synagogues. And what those synagogues revolved around was the, the reading and study of the Word, the Scripture. Okay? The Scripture was sort of a, a proxy for the presence of God. It wasn't the temple, it wasn't the sacrifices, but it was, it would suffice for the day-to-day life of the community. And so they would gather in synagogues, and this is when, when, you know, when Jesus goes into the synagogue in, in Nazareth. They're reading through Isaiah, and he gets up and he talks a little bit about the word. And he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So these people are scattered. They have synagogues. So they're, they're familiar with Especially, they're familiar with Scripture, okay, the Old Testament. And so, who James is writing to are these small communities of believers who, you know, when, when, when Jesus came, it's not like all the synagogues just stopped functioning. Some of them became filled with believers in Jesus. You know, the ones who believed that he was the fulfillment of the, the Scriptures that they were studying, they became Jesus communities, so, this is who James is writing to. P- 
people, and it could have included Gentiles, but people who are familiar with the Word of God, who really form their life around the Word of God, and who also have, have believed in the Lord Jesus as the Messiah. Okay? So, it, it always helps to know who the audience of the letter is, right? I mean, it just makes all the difference in the world. So what this book is, is a book of wisdom. Okay? It's not necessarily a book of uh, doctrine. It reads a lot differently than Paul's letters. Right? Did you notice that? It's quite different than Paul's letters. Um, and so, in, in Jewish communities and in Jewish culture... Wisdom, especially wisdom literature, was very important, right? Big chunks of the Old Testament are wisdom literature. The whole book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, Job is considered wisdom literature. Psalms, even, in, in a way, is wisdom literature, okay? So this letter is, is in the same vein, okay? It's talking about wisdom. Did you notice how many times you mentioned wisdom in this book? Wisdom. Um, it's equal parts Old Testament wisdom and, and Proverbs and the teachings of Jesus, which sort of transform all of those Old Testament teachings on wisdom into something that is, is much more essential to who God is. Okay? It's, he was wisdom in the flesh. And so if you go through, uh, if you go through, just say, the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find so many echoes from the book of James in the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll also find all kinds of echoes to the book of Proverbs in James. Um, Okay, so this book is a mix. It's a blend of Proverbs and the teachings of Jesus. Um, And so... You know, we we always caution every. You know, we, we want to be careful not to, especially in Paul's letters, to really extract the one-liners. You know, and, and kind of take those away from the context. I'd say if there's any book where one-liners are are more acceptable, it's in James, because it's not written as one long argument, one one long uh, chief argument from beginning to end, one long train of thought. It is much more of an anthology, a, a compilation of of wisdom teaching, just like the book of Proverbs, right? Those are one-liners. They don't really flow from one to the next. It's like proverb, proverb, proverb. It's a list, okay? So this book kind of reads like that, all right? So it's not a story. There's not really a, a train of thought. There are some themes that are woven throughout, okay? Um, and I'll talk about those. But um, I'm not going to go through all these, but there was, a, there was a chart I found, and I think this was, uh, in, some, it was in the ESV study Bible. But it's the, uh, all the places where the book of James harkens, to, harkens back to, to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of Jesus' core teaching, right? His core message. Um, and this is, this is, I mean, there's all these, there's probably, I don't know, 20 places where uh, it goes through, and this is probably not exhaustive. Um, so, this was a guy who was steeped in Old Testament wisdom, but also was steeped in the teachings of Jesus, the core teachings of Jesus. Um, there's a key verse I want to pull out in uh, chapter 1, verse 21. He says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word 
which is able to save your souls. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, if you're in the dispersion and if you have a community of people who, who read Scripture together, and a part of the Scripture you remember, if, if your Scripture points to the day in the, in the New Covenant when the Word of God will be written on your heart, and as in Deuteronomy 32, it says, it's near you. It's not out there. The Word of God is very near you to do it. And you hear James say, listen, receive with meekness the implanted word. What's he saying? This is new covenant language. We're living in the days where the word of God has been embodied by Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit has been written on our hearts. So we can not just hope to adhere to external codes, we can be transformed into what the Word of God was always pointing at, by Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. So when he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls, he's saying something very radical. He's saying, what you need in order to live righteously before God is 100% accomplished and 100% available to you by the power of the Holy Spirit within you. And so all these, these wisdom, this wisdom teaching, he's saying, all of it's inside of you. These are the days that all the scripture was pointing to. This is the new covenant. So let me read, um, let me read some of those passages from the Old Testament because they really, they, they bring this book of James to life. Right? It, it, it transforms it. It goes beyond reading Proverbs, which is day-to-day wisdom, and it, and it, it transforms it for me. Um, let's see. Oh, I didn't write these down. Hang on just a second. All right, let me, let me try and wing this. Where is it in Jeremiah? Anybody know? New Covenant? Write the law in your hearts. 25? No. This is, this is phone a friend day. Could be. Hang on. Shame on me for not knowing this. This is one of the crucial passages of the Old Testament. <laughs> and it's that easy to remember to boot. Okay, yeah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. They knew this scripture. So James here says, You don't need me to teach you anything. What I'm telling you is to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. These are new covenant days, everybody. Amen? Amen. Um, so, this, this book of wisdom is not a book of... It very much describes the community of God. Okay? Uh, he is writing to a dispersed, a scattered group of people who have little communities wherever they are. And so he says, you're being tested. Count it joy. He talks about how to be self-controlled, how to control your tongue, how to live in love with each other. Um, He also, he keeps talking about the Old Testament. Uh, In in chapter 2, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, According to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. He says if you're going to live by part of the law, you have to live by all of it. Or you can receive with meekness the implanted word and be transformed into that thing that the law was always pointing at. If you start to show partiality, if you start to claim the law to make yourself to, to set yourself apart, if you start to become judges of each other rather than just fully given lovers of each other, then you've gone back to the old covenant. You're not in the new covenant anymore. You're living by the code. You're not being empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life of love. 2.19. He says, You believe that God is one, which was one of the key confessions of the Israel, of the nation of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. That's one of the key points of their theology. There's one God. One of the things that set them apart. It's one of the ways they define themselves as a people. You believe that God is one. Well, guess what? That doesn't get you anywhere. It's, it's proper theology, and it's true, but it doesn't make you anything. Even the demons believe that. Right? 2.21. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. And he also talks about, in verse 25, same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 5. Do you suppose that it is to no purpose that that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Chapter 5, verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets 
who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. And then verse 17 of chapter 5. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. So he is just full of the scripture. All he is doing is, is just prompting them, giving these little tiny prompts to open up for them the scriptures. And he's saying, all that you need is already there. And it's all been placed inside of you. All of this life that you're being called to live. So the main themes that he pulls out are a proper attitude in the midst of suffering or trial. Um, there's one important part that I want to read. He talks about the difference between testing and temptation. Okay, Because he says that, that there's, there's a testing that happens, and even God sometimes tests us to, to reveal to us what, you know, where we don't fully love him or trust him. But there's also temptation, which comes from our own desires. Okay, so he says, God, does, God will never tempt you to evil. He will test you. God does not tempt you. And there's a difference. And then he says this about temptation. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, this is crucial. You've got to take this with you. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, so, is, is temptation sin? No. And that, I've seen that, that simple truth set a lot of people free. Oh, Temptation is not sin. If I get tempted in, in some way, I have not sinned. When is it sin? It's when desire conceives. So, something originating in your own will has to be done with the temptation in order for it to be called sin. Right? So you have to act on the temptation by your will. Now, you don't have to do that. If the temptation comes through... Your will does not have to engage with it at all, and it will not conceive. Does that make sense? Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And then obviously a life of sin just leads to death. It, it leads to separation from God. It leads, to, it leads away from the purpose for which you were created, which is life. Okay? So, testing... He says, you need to remain steadfast under trial, but don't get, don't get confused, because not all trial, the temptation is different than trial. There's trial that comes just from being you know, persecuted or suffering for, for the sake of the gospel, but then there's temptation. You, have, you still have desires, and those desires want things that are contrary to what God wants for you. And uh, you can handle those as well, he <laughs> says. So don't get confused. A temptation is not a test from God. It is a battle with your own desires. You don't have to give in to those desires. Okay? He talks about being doers of the word. Right? If you, and obviously he's talking to a community of people who know the word very well. He says that's not enough. Don't just come and, and don't just know the word... Don't just know about the word. Do it. 
right? Because if you, if you come, and here's, here's the illustration he uses. When you look at the Word, you see yourself, how you were created to be. You see the purpose of God. And if you go and doing something contrary to that, you've forgotten who you are. That's the illustration, and I like that. It's not like you've broken a rule. It's you have forgotten the purpose for which you were created. So don't just know the Word. Don't just know what you look like in the mirror and then walk away and forget what you look like. Remember who you are in the midst of all of it. So don't forget, he says, but be a doer who acts, and you will be blessed in your doing. Um, That's an interesting concept. There are certain blessings of God that are waiting to come down on you and are waiting for you to act in accordance with the word of God. Do it, and you will be blessed in your doing. Uh, Peter kind of hints at at this too. An act of obedience unlocks blessing of God. Okay, And this gets at what faith really means, I think. All right, so proper attitudes toward suffering. Uh, True faith, meaning action, active faith, obedient faith. He talks a lot about life and community. Okay? Wisdom. Talks about maintaining humility. And in all of this, I think he's pointing at the number one, that they are you are the people of God. You are the twelve tribes in the dispersion. You are the people of God. Wherever you are, you are the people of God. But being the people of God means something different than what it than what you would typically think of. It means something different than what your fathers thought it to be. Jesus has come and has redefined, not really redefined, but he has unveiled what it really means to be the people of God. And so being the people of God is a social, it has everything to do with relationship. Okay? Uh, The outward marks of the true people of God are not, we possess Torah, we believe God is one, okay? Those aren't what set mark out the people of God. What marks the people of God now, who've been implanted with the word, are godly behavior and impartial love. All these things that flow out of the life of of Jesus. This is what it looks like, okay? And that's far and above any economic marker, Right? He talks a lot about this flipped, flipped economy. Hey, if you're rich, howl for the miseries that are coming on you. If you're poor, rejoice and exult in your wealth. Because the, your economic status has nothing to do with who you are in the people of God. Don't look at these shabbily clothed people and treat them different than you do with the guy who's wearing the nice clothes. Right? It's not about economic external markers, or demographics, right? It has nothing to do with this. You've been, you've been filled with the life of Jesus, and what it means to be the people of God are wherever you are to have a community where you, where you together are living out the life of Jesus with each other, no matter what the world around you does. That is the prime wisdom. That's what it means to be wise, to be filled with the life of Jesus and to live in such a way 
that it, it, it reflects that you have been transformed by the word. You're not just an adherent. You, you don't just read it, but you actually do it. Okay? So that's really what the book of James gets at. Um, now go to 1 Peter chapter 1. It's right next to James. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Everybody scattered around. People of God who are scattered around. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And so the book of Peter, the letter of Peter, is to the same people. He addressed it, hey, People of God who are scattered everywhere, who aren't in, in Jerusalem. Remember, Peter and James were both stationed in Jerusalem. So they're sending these out from, from that central location. Hey, we want to address all the people of God. And it wasn't just Jews. This was anyone, you know, this would include Gentiles too. And real briefly, the message of Peter's book is this Be holy and live as Christ in the face of suffering. Now, those are two very loaded themes. <laughs> they say a lot. Holiness is one of the key themes of the Old Testament. What is holiness? It, I mean, we think of like, oh, it's do, do, do the right thing all the time. What it means is to be totally set apart for a particular purpose. To be consecrated. To be of one use. Okay? You as a people, be holy. Yes, in your conduct, obviously, but as a community, be set apart. Let your life together, the substance of your life together, be for one purpose. To fulfill the purpose of God. How do you do that? You live as Christ in the, faith, in the face of suffering. You die to your desires... And you live as Christ in the face of any opposition from the culture around you. Um, let me just read a few. Now, Peter, Peter's letter is, is much more one long flow. Right? We're back into, he, he says the, the core truth and then offers some applications of that truth as you go. It's unlike James. However, the, the reason behind the book, I think, is the same as James. To equip these, these little communities of Jesus believers all around the area to equip them to really be the people of God. If you were living away from Jerusalem, you would consider yourself at, 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 at a disadvantage. It's like, you know, um, if you really want to make movies, you've got to go out to L.A. If you really want to be safe, you've got to go out to New York. You know, if you really want to be in finance, make it big. You got to go to Wall Street, or you got to go to wherever. Um, if you really want to play basketball, you got to go to UK. <laughs> um, if you really want to be godly, you got to be in Jerusalem. Okay, so these guys are saying, no, 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 no. What's happening now is the Spirit has has gone worldwide with this, and you, in your little community, you're right where God wants you. Now, here's some truth that you need to be who be the people of God. Be fully the people of God. 
Um, First Peter 1.13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, little communities scattered all over the place. For the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Um, and then he talks about in chapter 2 how they, they are being built together as the, as the temple. Right? That's significant. I'm writing to you from Jerusalem where the temple is. You are being built together as the temple. Right? As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Priests are in Jerusalem. No. They're everywhere where the people of God gather. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You don't have to come to Jerusalem and buy a dove and sacrifice it. You are living in your own communities what the temple was always pointing at. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Politically, economically, no. In relationship with Jesus. You've been transferred out of the kingdom of the world and of darkness into another kingdom entirely. And so now he says in verse 11, chapter 2, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's a big Old Testament word. Exiles. The people of God always because of their... Always because they had broken the covenant were, were subject to exile. The judgment of exile. And he says, you've been brought into the family of God, but you're still exiles. But now, your exile is not an exercise of the judgment of God. Your exile is your chance to be a blessing to all nations. If you will be the kind of community that God is making you into. Does that make sense? Exile, now we are exiles. Not because we've been punished because we've broken the covenant of God. Jesus brought us out of that exile, bondage to sin. He broke that power once and for all. We are now in exile. These people are now in exile. They are sojourners and exiles, not because they've been sent out of the promised land, but because they have gone out, as Hebrews would say, they have gone out of the camp with Jesus to suffer with him 
so that they could be the blessing to the rest of the nations that they kept failing at before. Now they can be that blessing. Exile is your opportunity. Suffering is your opportunity to live as Christ, to fulfill the promise. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. What a great verse. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. What you do in the flesh has implications for your soul. It will destroy the essence of who you are on the inside. It's not just stuff. It's not just sin. It destroys you as a person. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So your personal holiness and your love for each other is precisely what's going to transform your exile into being a blessing to the place around you. As you pursue holiness and as you pursue love for for each other, out in your own little remote communities, those communities are going to begin to become more and more the house of God. And you out there in your exile are not waiting to be delivered from that situation. You have now been equipped to make that land of exile into the kingdom of God and the household of God. This is like when, when uh, there's, there's a foreshadow of this in Jeremiah. They send the people of Israel to Babylon for 70 years. And he says, pray for the peace of the nation that you're in. Right? You've been exiled, but my plan is still to bless the nations through you. And so now, um, the people of God in all these different areas are able to bring the kingdom of God and bring the community of God, bring the presence of God wherever they are. Because it's not confined to Jerusalem. Because it's, it's, it's all over the place by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? That can be a little confusing to, to follow that, that logic. That exile is now our golden opportunity. Right? So here's, here's what I think you know, I want to encourage us with today from these two books. You know, these, are, these are two apostles centered in Jerusalem, speaking to all the scattered communities of, of Jesus' followers throughout the area. Well, I think we can hear it. I mean, we are a scattered community of Jesus' followers, and we're in a place that is sometimes receptive and sometimes not to the good news. Okay? We don't suffer persecution in the same way they did, but we do have the same issues. People aren't receptive. We have our own passions to deal with, too. Right? We're struggling to uh, become holy. So, you know, the people of God, are, we're in the dispersion to this day. We have been sent out. And really, that's by design. We didn't stay in Jerusalem. The gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Not as a punishment, but as a mission. As a commission. And so here we are, and and we find ourselves in this time, until Jesus returns and sets everything to right, we are in a time that Jesus foretold uh, in, in one of his parables where we coexist. The city of God and the city of man are 
together in the same place right now. It's the, the wheat and the weeds. Okay? And, and for a time, it has to be that way. We have to be in, in exile. We have to coexist. And the key is not... Uh, so we have, the, we have the advantage. Because Jesus came into the world that was corrupt. And by his obedience to God, he was able to transform that place. So we have been sent into the world that is corrupt... And by our obedience to God, we can transform that place. That costs us our life. If we are going to do that, all, re- all redemption costs suffering. Okay? Our own redemption, what did it cost, as First Peter says? The blood of Jesus. We have been redeemed, not so that we can... Be, uh, be great and hey, no worries anymore. But that so we can join Jesus in that work. So that maybe at the cost of our blood, our community can experience who Jesus is and be transformed and be redeemed. So the gospel does not create a bubble for us to live in. That's not what the church is. The Jesus bubble. It incorporates us into the redemptive work of Jesus. We become his body. Well, what happened to his body? It was broken and poured out. For the redemption of people who didn't deserve it. And our hope is not in God coming to bring us out of our exile. Our hope is that through our death, God can bring us to life and people can be redeemed. That's the hope. That though we die, he will raise us. That through our death, he can bring salvation. So he, God is not coming back to deliver us from our exile. He's coming back to banish <laughs> evil from this place. He already took us out of exile. He took us out of bondage to sin. He's done that already. right? He doesn't need to come and deal with sin again. He has already dealt with sin and he has enabled us to be the transforming presence of himself in the earth. He has set us free. But then again, as Peter says, we don't use our freedom as a cover up for evil. As people who have been freed, we make ourselves servants. Because that's what Jesus did. He was totally free to do what he wanted. To do with his life what he wanted. And what he wanted most was to please the Father. Which meant becoming obedient to the point of death. And so with our freedom. Nothing's keeping us from doing this. We can become obedient to the point of death. And see people saved as a result of our obedience to God. And our sacrifice. So what do we do? We, 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 we remain pure. We don't obey our passions because those have been, those wage war against our soul. We, can, we keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. To the, to the extent that our context dictates, we suffer, right? And it's hard to say that to a group of Americans. Because we don't suffer. 
We have, we, we are, we're in Disneyland, okay? But to the extent that what God calls us to do conflicts with our own desires, we suffer. We suffer the loss of satisfaction in this, fulfillment in this, free time here, this house here, this money here. We suffer. We sacrifice. We serve. We show hospitality without grumbling. Meaning that we, we, we freely, with an open hand, bring people into our lives without counting the cost and, and grumbling and having to... You know, keeping tabs on everything that this costs. No, we, we show hospitality without grumbling. <laughs> if there's any grumbling in us when we show hospitality, we need, to, we need to be rid of that. And all of this is so that we can be tangible, so that we ourselves can be tangible examples of Jesus' life. We don't just tell people what Jesus is like. The mission of the church is not to just tell people what Jesus is like. It's to live as he lived. Yes, tell people. But don't just be a hearer of the word. Be a doer. Live as... If you call on him as father, be holy as he is holy. If you're going to claim his name, live like he lives. Otherwise, don't claim his name. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't die so that you could just have all these benefits. He, he, he died to, 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 to enable you to be the person you were always meant to be. To bring life. To, to suffer in a way that redeems. So, um, I want to call us to, to understand ourselves as one of these little communities. We've been placed here. We have a job to do. That job is only going to be accomplished as we receive with meekness the implanted word. When we let the, the life of Jesus and the word of Jesus come to life, we become obedient to it. We be doers of the word. And what that looks like primarily is, is a cruciform-shaped life, a cross-shaped life, a posture toward the world. That understands the cost, but understands that it's only at great cost that redemption comes into the world. Nothing can be redemptive if it's self-centered. If it's for your gain, it can't be redemptive. Now, God can work in spite of you, right? And as, as Paul says in Philippians, hey, it, as long as Christ's being preached, I don't, care how, I don't care what their motives are. That's not to your credit, though. <laughs> um. The things that are redemptive are the things that are done in the way that Jesus did them. And the way he redeemed the world was through uh, death to himself. And, and utter service and utter obedience to God. So, I want to underscore the, the, how the word tells us who we're supposed to be. How the Holy Spirit enables us to do that. And how what that looks like is often uncomfortable to our flesh. It's definitely uncomfortable to our passions and our desires. But as we crucify those, and we, as we allow those to be, to be shaped and, and, and you know, refocus, I don't, you know, I don't think that passion itself, you know, God created us with the ability for passion. It's when it's curved in on ourselves is when it's bad. So when God allows our passions to be directed toward him and toward his people, in a holy way, then we're going to be able to, to, 
to, to be the, the community of God, not in a way that walls off and sort of fortifies our own position, but in a way that as we touch a broader and broader circle, we are overcoming the corruption and the darkness that is there. The, the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness doesn't overcome it. And that's who we're called to be. And this, was, this is the, the purpose that God has always att- intended, to bless his people so that they could be a blessing. And that's all James and Peter are pointing at. And that's all we need to, to, to know from these books. And suffering, this is what they want to underscore, suffering, either crucifying your own desires or suffering by being persecuted, is a redemptive process. That is the mechanics of, of redemption. That's how, that's how God comes into these places and is able to transform and is able to bring through resurrection power, his son back to life in the earth. Amen? Um, so, you know, we're, we're moving toward a period of outreach on campus. And I just want to stir us up and say that we are a community and uh, we've received these letters. We're a little diaspora Jesus community. And we're, we get in our, you know, our noses are always in our Bibles and this is good. Now let's let this word, let's receive it with meekness and let's let it work out into our lives and get a vision. When you walk around, you are being presented with opportunity after opportunity to, to sacrifice yourself to bring Jesus' redemptive presence into wherever you are. That's, that opportunity is always available to you if you will listen to God and be obedient and turn off your passions, right? Walk away from those. Because those will just take you off into whatever. Um, so all, that whole bundle of themes, I think, I want to just <laughs> exhort us with. Because I think it's where these books point, right? Uh, our ultimate purpose, uh, our identity in the Word of God, and the power of the Holy Spirit to make us that community of people. Um, so, we want to come to communion. So let me just read this. And again, I can't find it. Oh yeah, okay, chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves... The same way of thinking. This is the mind of Christ. Right? For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Father, as we come to the table, I pray that you would truly impart your life to us. Uh, Lord, that you would... Uh, that you would remind us that we have been purchased by your blood. But also, Lord, that you would remind us that we have been commissioned to live as you live. And God, I pray that as we spend time uh, contemplating you and remembering you as we come to the table, that you would arm us with the same way of thinking. Lord, that you would deliver us from... Uh, living according to our own passions and that you would help us to live according to your will at whatever cost to us because we know lord that it it is good lord when your will is done it is good and life comes forth and the world is as it should be when your will is done and god we ask that that your will would be done through our lives and we know that that requires us to die to ourselves to die to our passions to die to the things that uh Keep us at enmity with each other so that you can release the life of your Son by the Holy Spirit in us. God, send this word deep into our hearts. I pray that we would know that it's been implanted, that that we have been released uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit to be the people that your word uh, says we are. And Lord, let us come to the table today uh, to receive grace, uh, to, to receive boldness, uh, and to receive a, uh, an impartation of your grace to live as Christ in his name and for his glory. Amen.